Hi everyone, my name is Brendan Malkin, editor of Information Emir, and welcome to Information Emir's first Crossroads podcast. So we're following in the footsteps of my uh, US esteemed colleagues who've been doing podcasts for uh, several months now. Today our first one is about investing in greenfield infrastructure in the UK. So I'm joined today by Giles Frost. Giles is the Director of International Public Partnerships, IPP, a well-known greenfield investor based in London, and he's also Chairman of Amber Infrastructure. I'm also joined today by Greg McClymond, who's an Executive Director for Public Affairs at IFM Investors. Greg is also a former MP and Shadow Minister of State for Pensions. Before I sort of kick off proceedings, I wanted to sort of set the scene quickly. So based on kind of information zone statistics, greenfield investing last year held up pretty well in the UK during the crisis, particularly renewables. According to our figures, uh, 11 billion of deals reached financial close in the renewable space the last year, which was significantly up on the year before. Also, quasi-PPPs, obviously the PF2 model and PFIs are no no longer being procured. So we're talking here about student accommodation, roads, healthcare, and so on. There was such a shy of 660 million of deals done last year versus a much larger 1.9 billion in 2019. So that kind of sets the scene. So I really wanted to discuss the fact that, I guess, at the moment, there's an awful lot of optimism around investing into into greenfield infrastructure. We've seen from the UK government's its own national infrastructure strategy, which came out last year, and also its 2020 spending review, which committed to spend something in the region of 500, 500 billion into infrastructure over the next five years. So Greg, I just wanted to start with you, perhaps. Is this a big opportunity for an investor like yourself and, and others like yours, would you say? I guess the, the starting point probably is uh, that ambition, which the, the UK government is demonstrating, you know, to really significantly increase investment into uh, the infrastructure space. Government often talks about it in terms of, you know, capital expenditure more broadly, and sometimes it's difficult in government's language to distinguish between infrastructure purely and broader capital expenditure. But certainly we know there is a, a real appetite from the government to, you know, to go big on infrastructure as part of its levelling up and net zero um, programs, and I guess from an IFM point of view, is you know is a very big investor in, in core economic infrastructure, and um, is really what the Global Infrastructure Fund of IFM does on the equity side, and then on the debt side, investing in infrastructure too. Uh, we notice that the traditional model for delivering lots of projects in the UK, the private finance initiative, you know, has essentially been. Um, killed off. It's the last rights performed by uh, the May government and now the Johnson government. And with our our Build Britain uh, model, we're really trying to offer something to the debate about what kind of financing approach can deliver significant projects um, in and across the UK. So that's probably our starting point. PSI's gone. That was, you know, critical to delivering over 700 projects, I think, by the end of 2018. What's going to replace it? There's lots of talk around the Thames Tideway model. We know that mixture of you know, regulated asset base, um, contract for difference, debt underwriting by the government, first loss insurance, and so on. So we're really you know, proposing an, another approach, um, 
for the toolkit uh, that government might bring to its thinking about large-scale projects. Giles, the other day, the government talked about potentially large private investment demand from the government through its new plans for the UK uh, Infrastructure Bank, which with its, uh, quote, 22 billion of capital firepower, potentially 8 billion through larger infrastructure schemes, which may well possibly involve the private sector. This all kind of on paper seems very exciting. I think it is exciting. It's it's because it's it's a partial answer to the obvious question that most of us had in the infrastructure investment world of what was going to happen given the the um, lack of availability of the EIB, the European Investment Bank, for for um, infrastructure projects. So so it's definitely a step in the right direction. I think I think it's really important though to to understand what it is that Treasury has in mind for the National Investment Bank, and I think there's probably two kind of two points to make and one sort of question really. And the first is that, you know, they're at pains to say, the Treasury at pains to say that the NIB will not be there to displace private capital. It's not there to compete with private capital, uh, which obviously is 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 good news. Um, uh, I don't think anyone thought it was, but uh, I think it's helpful to have that, you know, expressly set out. I think the second point that's also being made quite clearly by by Treasury and the Infrastructure Projects Authority is that this is not some sort of backdoor reintroduction of of the private finance initiative or PFI or anything like that. So so I think for those people who hope that there's a kind of long shopping list of projects which are going to have sort of clearly defined um, private sector um, investment requirements attached to them, you know, those those people are going to be disappointed. So the NIB isn't isn't there as a sort of facilitator of programs of new investment. Um, and so I suppose it, it does beg the question a little bit as to what the NIB's role is going to be, because if it's not going to displace private um, capital um, and it's not going to be a, a originator of new projects itself, I suppose it leaves the NIB as being a sort of filling, you know, what you might say is a slightly sort of hard to define gap in the market of, of those projects which are investable, so, you know, are attractive to investment because the NIB is going to run on commercial lines, yet somehow are not attracting capital. And I think, you know, for those of us in the business, it's it's not totally clear at the moment what projects would fall into that kind of sort of loose gap between what can be done in the moment and and what can't because i think many of us practitioners would say you know the main reason why more projects in i don't know electric vehicle charging for instance aren't being done is because actually the the economics and revenue structures you know aren't yet sufficiently developed for mainstream investors to be confident in them Giles, thank you. Thank you for that. I suppose it it does take us on to a sort of related point, which is around what is the kind of pipeline. So there is this talk around a lot of government sort of capital firepower coming in. But what 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 are these schemes exactly? There there is a sort of talk of a greater demand for kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, I suppose, within the industry, perhaps, where in the absence of a kind of large PPP pipeline, that it's down more down to the investors themselves to kind of come up with them. Greg, is that something that you concur with, or are you kind of reliant more on the, on the kind of government producing the pipeline itself? I mean, I think entrepreneurial spirit's always to be welcomed, isn't it? And certainly, you know, an investor like IFM that you know, runs a, an open-ended global infrastructure fund of quite a significant size, and there's quite a lot of capital to deploy, is always actively going to be looking, you know, to create its own opportunities. 
But I guess we can't get away from the fact that, you know, absent a pipeline, it's quite difficult to get, um, to take things concretely forward at, at any speed. And I think nuclear is, is a good example of this, isn't it? Um, now, nuclear is kind of unusual because of the scale of the project um, and, you know, the, the, the levels of construction risk therein. But you can see in the government's apparent ambivalence around the way to fund new nuclear and indeed whether it wants to do large-scale new nuclear at all versus, you know, smaller modular nuclear reactors. I think that the nuclear debate gives one a good insight into just some of the issues government are grappling with. One, is this a technology that we want to further pursue as part of our, of our energy mix from a decarbonisation point of view? Um, and secondly, uh, for government, the, the, the issue of um, is government prepared to take a direct equity stake you know, in new nuclear, my reading of the tea leaves is that that's probably the stumbling block. Doesn't want to go down contract for difference route. You know, all the controversy around the, you know, the, the price uh, paid for Hinkley. But those institutions in the private sector who build nuclear, um, you're not being prepared to take as much of the construction risk themselves as the government wishes them to. And I think that takes into that the thorny issues of who bears the risk. Makes sense. And Giles, I suppose if you're looking at the pipeline itself, you touched there upon an interesting point around making projects economically viable for investors uh, like yourselves, but investors like yourselves also want scale. I think just touching a point we just raised there with Greg around this kind of idea of an entrepreneurial spirit. How do you kind of fit all that together? Like on the one hand, you've got a kind of government keen to invest, but you've got private investors who want scale. They they want projects which they can invest in and maybe ones where they actually have to take things up on the, under their own steam. Uh, and in the meanwhile, we've got this kind of complex demand for all sorts of new infrastructure. It is a bit of a confused landscape because on the one hand, you've got investors, including people like IFM, you know, some of the biggest um, pension fund managers in the world who are, you know, almost awash with capital, which wants to go into, you know, low risk, long term um, infrastructure type type investments. Uh, which they expect or hope will give give long-term steady returns that ultimately fund their pension obligations. Um, you've got you've got the government promoting, and this applies to all governments, I think, really, but we've got the government promoting um, you know, the need for very significant um investment to to facilitate the climate change objectives we've got as well as the other infrastructure needs that come from you know from a from a from a changing economy uh, an aging population and all those other pressures um and there's a there's a there is, there is frankly a disconnect in the market at the moment because because We've kind of tried an approach um, where where the government sort of went out with its own list of, of of projects and procured financial solutions to them. That was called PFI and PPP. It was it was, I think, successful in terms of infrastructure delivery. Very successful in terms of infrastructure delivery. Um, it it was politically a failure because it was it was hijacked um, in a sense um, and. In, in 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 the popular um, view, at least, was seen as a kind of privatization of of the nation's assets, which I think you know had elements of accuracy to it, but almost or also quite important elements, which you know which never quite quite got the light of day in terms of the popular debate. But I mean, I don't think it matters. I think that that ship has sailed. Um, and you've got 
and, you've, and, you've, and you've got a little bit of uncertainty as to how this how this sort of gap is going to be going to be bridged. Now, I don't think any of us infrastructure investors can expect, as of right, for government to bring forward you know a, a long list of projects for us to make money out of. That would be that would be um, unrealistic. So, I do think we need to go back to not quite a fully kind of Victorian approach to literary infrastructure where you are where you are kind of building it with 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 great hope and hoping that people will come and come and use it. But I do think that we need to have methods where the private sector, be they developers or investors, can bring ideas to government, um, effectively retain the intellectual property in those in those ideas. And if those ideas are are supported, can then build out and invest in those ideas. So I, I think a hybrid approach, which encourages more innovation in infrastructure development, would be would be fantastic. And at the moment, I don't think the kind of rules of the game are really allowing for that. And do you sense, Giles, that in some ways, looking at things like the energy transition, what we are now, where we were maybe ten years ago with kind of wind and solar, and that the same may also apply with other points you just raised there about the fact that we're dealing now with an aging population as well as the sort of climate change and so on is there kind of a long road to go so we're potentially looking at a long road of private investors bringing bright new ideas i think i'd, I'd actually sort of argue that that you know the, the energy transition has actually been you know quite a good you know it's obviously a huge success story in terms of the proportion of our, our nation's energy that's generated from renewable sources and i mean the government largely achieved that um, by allowing the private sector to develop wind farms, uh, which is obviously where most of it comes from, offshore wind farms, um, but also other sources of generation. Uh, they did it against a regulatory backdrop, which was you know, published and understood. And they did it against a backdrop where there was support for power prices, whereby the developers knew that if they could build the wind farms and surmount the technological challenges of doing so, then they were guaranteed effectively a minimum price for electricity. So in, in that sector, that works, and I think has worked and continues to work really, really well. And, and the important thing there, I think, is to look at the, the government intervention which brought that about, which was effectively to underpin the prices at which the developers could sell their electricity. Now, if you can develop similar mechanisms uh, in other sectors, I think that'd be very helpful. But again, you know, I don't want to appear that I'm just criticising a government here because I think I think in other sectors it's very very hard to get that same level of kind of revenue support because with electricity you are producing a commodity that's being sold, and we all understand about how we pay our electricity bills. If you're talking about other sorts of climate change initiative, you don't have a natural revenue stream that goes with them necessarily. And therefore, you either need to invent that, that revenue stream because, I don't know, hypothetically, you need to introduce you know, carbon-based road pricing for people driving on the roads, which obviously has its own political challenges. Or you have to invent a more explicit subsidy regime by which government will encourage these things. And both those things are fraught with practical difficulties. Thank you, Giles. And Greg, in your own report to the UK government, you highlighted your, some of your own case studies, as you call it, which you find particularly exciting for different reasons. But one possibly worth highlighting is the Greater Montreal Light Rail Scheme, which is a project in Canada for the development of a large all-electric public transportation network. Do you expect those kinds of schemes to kind of come their way in, in this country? And, and are these schemes kind of guiding your way forwards? Or are you interested in some of these entrepreneurial ideas as well that, that we've discussed? 
Yeah, very good question. I, I think the Canadian example was just a very interesting one, you know, where the, the National Pension Fund of, of Quebec essentially has taken on from scratch um, in a partnership with the, the federal and provincial authorities to deliver the, you know, the, the transit system, the light rail system in Montreal. I think that's interesting, um, firstly, because it's, it's, it's innovative, you know, that, that kind of partnership, equity partnership. Um, between government and pension funds, I think it's quite striking on a large-scale transport project. And then I think what IFM we would say is that you know if you are a, an investor like IFM owned by pension funds, um, you know you're representing a, a form of capital, I suppose, which is you know has the ability to be in line with its liabilities long term. And can you take that you know that profile? And the fact as an institution over 25 years, IFM has grown to be pretty big and developed quite a lot of expertise um, to, to offer up a potential partnership with government on, on significant projects where government and the, you know, the, the pension capital um, partner get together at the outset you know, and, and take the project on from the beginning. And I guess that's where the departure point from PFI comes in and what has encouraged our development of this this approach, this potential approach is, you know, the, the critique of PFI and, you know, some of the critique of PFI is justified, for sure some of it's not. But but that model where, you know, it was it was every everything had to be bid um together and it made it difficult to get the risk transfer right because you had a lot of short term capital involved. Um you know, on the financing side, is there a way to design a, you know, a model which harnesses pension capital's long-term nature, um, and therefore provides on that side of things, you know, the incentive to not only build um, the greenfield project but actually to operate it and maintain it over over the long term, um, and return for a significant equity stake. So that's sort of, I guess, the, the background to the development of the, the Bill Britain model. Can we get that long-term alignment um, of the, the form of capital and, you know, and the actual life cycle of a, of a significant asset? And for sure, it's a contribution to debate. Uh, you know, there's no suggestion that it's it, it will be ideal in every circumstance or indeed any circumstance in particular. It's something to take to the table. Um, and to discuss with government and say, look, have you thought about doing things this way? Joe's point about the National Infrastructure Bank's points are very well taken. I mean, it's not quite clear yet in the UK context what the NIB is there to do, to Joe's point. Um, but certainly, in fact, and on the equity side, you know, how far is it is it going to get involved in, in you know, allocating equity as opposed to just debt? And we are certainly keen to discuss with the NIB as it, you know, as it looks to develop its mandate. You know, is there a significant place for for, for long-term equity partnerships between the infrastructure bank and infrastructure investors? Lots of interesting points there, Greg. And I suppose, I guess, effectively procurement of infrastructure, if we are talking about projects, perhaps, and obviously the Greater Montreal Light Rail System is one of those you, you refer to. But I guess this is a point you've already raised, but we could look at it in more detail, perhaps, Giles, with the sort of demise of PFIs, PF2s, for whatever reason, those procurement models have been scrapped. People now talk about different models, RAB models, contracts for difference. What, what's your thoughts in terms of the clarity around that? Is it going to be a case of different models for different projects? 
I think we've probably gone through the era of having a kind of single kind of overarching solution to to the need for infrastructure in, in different sectors. I think you know, it's also true to say that, that a lot of the social infrastructure, which was a focus of things like PFI, has actually been renewed and therefore that there's you know the, the need there is has, has, is diminished. Um, I mean, the regulated asset based model or RAB model you mentioned is, is interesting. I mean, one of the projects that we are developing is the Thames Tideway Tunnel. That is a that is a um, new um, wastewater tunnel being built directly beneath the bed of the Thames um, to catch wastewater which currently floods into the Thames. And that is the so far the only, the first and only um, single project financed under the regulated asset-based model in the UK. So, so we're used to regulated asset-based model applying to all sorts of regulated um, entities in, in you know, gas distribution, electricity distribution and transmission and so on. Um, but here we had a single asset, uh, a wastewater asset, um, and then and effectively uh, the investors in, in that are, are allowed to make permitted return on their capital, a, a, a rate of return which was agreed by uh, by Ofwat, the regulator at the outset, um, and um, and that ultimately is is a small chunk of everybody's water bill in the in the um, Thames Valley area. So I think I think again, you know, I made the point earlier on that that it's much much easier to create models for infrastructure procurement where you've got an established form of revenue stream just like electricity then people are used to paying water bills and therefore effectively finding a way to tack a bit on and spread the cost is 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 relatively straightforward so i think the the single asset rab model um you know, I think it's seen as a success with Tideway. I think there's there's talk about um, using that model or variations of that model for other big single assets within the within the water industry. So you know, new reservoirs or major sewage treatment works, those sorts of things. But then when you look at some of the other things that are needed, it's it's a bit more challenging because if you, if in fact climate change means you need to spend two or three billion on coastal defences, for instance, then we don't have a mechanism which is naturally there to support the the, the you know the revenue side of that of that equation. So you know, I think those are, are the really difficult cases, and in 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 those sorts of cases and other sorts of climate infrastructure, the choice really is you know, does the government pay itself? Um, and we've seen, obviously, the government, you know, more willing to take on the risk of large-scale capital projects more recently. Um, you know, not always successfully. Um, and I think, you know, most of the big highways projects are seen as being reasonably successful. But then the, the rail electrification projects and perhaps things like Crossrail, you know, call into question sometimes as to whether the notionally cheaper nature of government capital really translates into a cheaper overall project once you've taken into account, you know, possible deficiencies in project management and so on. So, you know, I don't want to get into the whys and wherefores of individual projects, but but you know that that debate has raged really for for twenty five years. 
And you know, every time we have a kind of, you know, a, a disappointing outcome on a government funded scheme that people say, oh, we should use the private sector. And then, you know, the, the cycle changes and, and people say, oh, look, the private sector is making unnecessary profits out of this. We should do it in-house. And, you know, I think we're back into an in-house type moment in the cycle now. And I'm, I'm sure that will that will change. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the point I think that, that's, that's missing in this, and I don't pretend it's a, a single answer to, to, to um, your question, though, is that um, under our legal system for procurement at the moment, we don't have a mechanism which really allows um, people to bring forward ideas to government. Um, and the you know, the procurement rules which applied in or do apply in the European Union, which obviously now um, Britain is not necessarily fully subject subject to, were a good thing in many respects because they ensured open competition and therefore um, transparency and 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 um, and value for money. But they didn't really offer a route to people bringing forward good ideas to government in which some of these things could be addressed. And I think, you know, one one area of optimism I see in the national infrastructure strategy, and hopefully also in the work of the NIB, is is to allow more experiments, if you like, where people have brought forward ideas um, and we can see if they work. And if the NIB's role includes, you know. Equity or debt support for some of these innovative, untested ideas. I think that would be a good step, big step forward. And those untested ideas you are thinking about there. I guess obviously it is early stages, but do you think that might apply across the kind of gamut of everything one conceives of as being the kind of energy transition? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think so. I mean, the, the obvious areas are decarbonisation, and you know, we've got we've got we've got we've got issues to face with um, electrification of road transport, um, which aren't purely about charging. Um, so there's other issues there, you know, that it's, it's not just a question of putting charges, it's, 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 it's a question of the, the, the adaptation of electricity grids to bring the right voltages to the right places. Um, there's, um, um, you know, there's a, there's a wider issue around carbon capture and storage because it's unlikely in any any foreseeable time time scale that we'll be able to eradicate carbon generation or carbon um, from from all 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 aspects of life. Um, there's the ongoing debate about energy storage and and how we can find better ways of storing the intermittently generated electricity from from uh, renewable sources. And none of those really have a single technical solution. And as a result, at the moment, they don't have an investable solution. Plenty of food for thought there. But Greg, I wanted to pick up something which is probably quite dear to your heart and your with your pension background, is this issue of, is there the private capital to support this investment? I mean, obviously, there is a mood of optimism here, which Giles has expressed here. And, and I suppose from your own point of view, you know, there is the question of, you know, in the UK, we have increasingly seen uh, long-term pension capital being aggregated into these pools. There's now eight pension pools representing almost 90 government pension schemes, which are a much more cohesive uh, investment programme. Seems like there's enough capital there, but I think in terms of you know your own ideas from your submissions to the government, you're also talking about kind of potentially investment capital coming from further field. Obviously in Australia, there's a wall of capital ready to be deployed into infrastructure. We've seen that already, but do you think there's a lot more that could that could come this way, do you think? Yeah, a really interesting question. Around if you take the UK, I think you probably have to distinguish between different different parts of the of the pension fund system. 
So certainly I would say personally, you know, a really um, useful advance that you have the pools and the, and the local government pension scheme side, and you can see this in the, you know, the emergence of platforms, um, including the infrastructure platform that's been set up relatively recently, you know, start to make those kind of investments. That seems very positive to me. Um, I think in the corporate DB side, which is, you know, the historical beating heart of the UK pension system, um, the, the cash flow negative nature, you know, of, of lots of that sector um, have implications. You know, the, the focus is often in corporate DB towards buyout or buy-in, um, you know, on, on matching liabilities to assets and then looking to, you know, hand over the the, the risk to an insurance company or to pay out the pensions. Um, until the last member of the scheme is no longer, you know, drawing a pension. And that is implications in the UK because that means, you know, that capital is, tends to be much more in, you know, in gilts and similar bond-like instruments in line with liability-driven investment approaches. So I think in the UK, you're looking at LGPS and you're looking at, you know, defined contribution and particularly the rise of, of the auto-enrollment sector. That's clearly, you know, in its early days, auto-enrollment has been going seven or eight years now. Um, but the contributions are pretty low, um, so the funds are growing and they're compounding. But you know, from you know, from from a zero starting point, that's probably long term going to be a source of capital for investment in these areas. And if you look at if you look at IFM, just to you know, make the comparison, you know, IFM is interested in very long term investments, um, reflecting the in particular as a starting point that very cash flow positive nature of the Australian defined contribution system. You know, cash flow positivity at the fund level is really important. Our owners, you know, have, um, you know, regular contributions coming in and a compulsory system across most of the working population every month. And that really encourages a long-term perspective. And we're keen to harness that to investments, you know, in the UK and elsewhere. And your Joe's point about the different models is, of course, really well made. Government are very keen, is my impression, on you know on the regulated asset-based approach. Um, and I take Giles's point, of course, that um, you know applying one model to, um, to sectors with quite different characteristics is a challenge. I would add another challenge. You know, I'm a Thames Water customer, and I certainly noticed that it's quite significant increase in my bill this year. And I suspect part of that's got to do with you know the regulated asset-based funding of Thames Tideway. And that's certainly something that's, that's always in the government's mind as it, it weighs up different approaches. You know, in the regulated asset base, the, the great positive aspect of it is it reduces the cost of debt financing because, you know, the, the money is coming direct from consumers to fund the construction phase. But at the same time, of course, it does mean higher bills, um, you know, for something that's not yet actual or real. And Jim uh, mentioned too the you know, the, the water sector more broadly. And you see that in the, you know, I think the challenge government has about how does it get right the balance uh, between what it sees as the, the duty to, you know, to keep bills as low as possible and that long-term investment uh, in water infrastructure and energy infrastructure as Giles laid out and indeed telecoms infrastructure. That That's the kind of, you know, the real gritty political challenge. And again, we wonder whether, you know, something to have in the, you know, in the toolkit is a is a shared equity model with with long term pension capital. You know, there might be projects we think where that could potentially offer 
you know, some attractive characteristics from the government's point of view. Someone who can share the burden of actually, you know, the expertise which is necessary to deliver these projects to Giles' point about, for sure, government looks like it's keener to do more stuff, you know, on the books, so to speak, you know, publicly funded. But there are clearly challenges as the IPA set out regularly um, around, you know, the, the expertise and the delivery capability of government. So can it find the right partner for the right project who wants to stick around for the long term and is looking to make, you know, a reasonable return, but not, you know, looking to make excess returns? Interesting. And I suppose that's a point worth picking up maybe with you, Giles, around, on the one hand, the government needs more of a push, I guess, for publicly funded infrastructure, perhaps. But obviously, it's making no bones. It still needs private capital, but also needs the expertise of the private sector, without a doubt. I guess it does depend on the project. But do you think, what's your kind of take on that particular point there about the idea of kind of the pure equity model, the longer term pension fund, fund capital? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that the purity model works for 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 certain sorts of investors better than others and and i mean ultimately what um what um what we we all want as taxpayers and what government wants is is the best value for money solution and and um i mean one, one of the one of the ideas i've i've personally promoted for a long time you know without huge amounts of success although it's been adopted in in, in a number of other countries um, such as Australia is 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 actually models or hybrid models where where you know a large chunk of the capital is provided by the government, but you have a um, you know significant stake, you know, be it 10, 15 percent, whatever it might be, which is provided by the private sector. And you know, to my mind, that does give quite a beneficial outcome because it lowers the cost of capital um, as far as possible by using government debt, which obviously is cheaper than anybody else's cost of cost of funds. But it preserves the the kind of skin in the game element that comes from having private sector equity in there, which obviously brings beneficial. Um, uh, elements in terms of project management and and and, and governance because because um, you know that 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 level of investment I think um, is sufficient to motivate people to really focus on getting the job done mm-hmm. to time and on budget which are the critical things from a, from a customer's point of view from a stakeholder's point of view. Greg, you've talked in your document to the government about how the government can do more, but you also talk about what governments can do less of, putting more pressure on the private sector. And is there any other thing you think the government can be doing more to, to inspire private capital into the, into the sector? Yeah, I think the, there's quite a lot of issues to, to unpack there. Let me take one or two, I suppose. From our point of view, I guess we're, you know, we're really trying to put on the table um, a proposal that for you know for significant size economic infrastructure projects probably broadly defined, then can we find a way between government and uh, pension capital you know to to put more equity on the table? So for sure there'll be other forms of funding as well. But if we think about PFI, you know the the, the equity layer was was often very thin, wasn't it? And it it was sold out, sold up, you know, as soon as the as the project construction was complete. And that had a kind of impact on incentives, you know, which which you know one could see could lead to you know a short term approach that might not always be in the long term interest of, of that piece of infrastructure and its users. So I guess that's our starting point. And um, you know, if you can, if you can get more equity 
uh, on the table, then it reduces the need for what quickly becomes often pretty complex forms of, of debt financing. Now, of course, there's other ways, as you know, Jill's much more eloquent than me on this is set out in terms as a model, you know, where the government's provided first loss insurance and um, to underpin, you know, the, the debt which has been uh, bought by pension funds and others. Um, but we, we think certainly there's a case for trying to simplify, and this again is trying to um, take what government is saying in the UK about, you know, the, the downsides of the PFI model that you know, opacity and complexity was something which the government really emphasised um, when it when it said that it would no longer use the model for future projects. We're trying to think, you know, how is a way to reduce the complexity of the contracts? Um, one way we think is to get more equity, um, you know, on the table. So that probably be an important element in any discussions we might have with, with government. Um, and I think that does lead, if you can do that, you know, you... you we're also seeing potentially, and this goes to the point I made a moment ago around, you know, pension pension funds are, are looking to meet their, you know, their, their needs of pensioners. They don't need excess returns, inverted commas, and therefore we're certainly open to the idea of, you know, potentially capping excess returns, um, which is the Scottish model um, you know, proposed by the Scottish government is a kind of move on from from PFI. You know, has some sort of elements of that where, um, in certain contexts, you know, monies are paid back, which are seen deemed to have been excessive. And we certainly think, you know, we're prepared to discuss that with government. If that's a concern of government, you know, that they get on the wrong side of the, you know, of the contract, you know, we're, we're open to discussions about how you would structure the, the IRR. I guess on a related point, Giles, I suppose one obvious criticism of the government or building greenfield infrastructure in this country has been around sort of delays to getting things done on on time and and to budget do you think kind of as a country we're getting better at doing that do you think there's more that can be done or was this not really an issue as uh, this time would you say i mean i think you, you you tend to only hear the kind of bad stories don't you and, and therefore but you know the the um you know greg greg, greg in a sense made the same point in terms of his willingness to share upside um, you know, there are no newspaper headlines when when Greg shares his excess, excess profits with people. But if a IFM backed project is is late or a construction contractor goes bankrupt, and you know, which is no fault of of the investor, and think bad things happen, then your name's all over the press. So, so you know, but I mean, to be fair, I think government is 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 absolutely alive to that, and therefore, you know, there's 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 more mileage in terms of press coverage and, and, and sort of popular sentiment in terms of complaining things go wrong when they're, they're right. So, you know, I, I don't I don't think we should be, you know, if, if we're going to focus on the on the on the on the sort of failures or things things that could have gone better, we should do so in the context of recognizing the size of the of the kind of pie and the number of projects which have gone well. So I don't I don't think we should be overcritical. Um, but I think I think there are some lessons to be to be to be learned from the past, and and um, you know I think I think one of those is in governance. Um, just to pick a couple of examples, I think one of those is in the governance, and I, th- I think the public sector owned and, and managed projects do have a governance difference from private sector projects because in the private sector managed projects, then essentially the only focus is getting a project done on time, to budget, 
in compliance with the contract and the kind of laws that apply to, to, the, to the project. I think inevitably in publicly owned and managed projects, other considerations come to the fore. Um, and you know, those considerations, you know, frequently end up with changes of of, of project, you know not necessarily project direction, but in terms of the detail of projects, uh, all of which have impacts generally upwards in terms of in terms of cost and generally outwards in terms of so the time scale. So and I think there is a sort of category difference, if you like, between public and private projects. But then again, I mean, you know, the private projects aren't immune to to issues either. And and um you know, Greg talked about relative thin capitalization of some, some projects a generation ago and the sort of problems that caused. And, you know, there's a real problem, for instance, in private sector projects, which are heavily invested into by the construction companies. Because if you're a construction company and you earn the equity in the project and you're providing construction services um, and you get into difficulties, which construction companies seem to do so with depressing regularity, then there's nobody there left to rescue the project. It's a construction company has gone bankrupt. And there's nobody left, you know, at the at the at the equity seat, at the equity table, directing what happens next. So, you know, I think I think both structures have have significant difficulties to them. Um, and you know, for my money, for instance, on the on the private side, you know, I, I think there is strong merit in trying to get um, companies with who provide crucial roles in terms of construction or operation and, and management of, of facilities to, to say you've got to, you've got to pick and choose. You can either be in the equity or you can be providing the services. If you provide, you can't provide both. Greg and Giles, thank you both very much. That was Giles Frost, who's director of IMPP, and also Greg McClymond, uh, Executive Director of Public Affairs, IFM Investors. I'm Brendan Malkin, editor of Information Emir. Thank you all for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next time for our next Crossroads podcast. Bye for now.